This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Just when we were starting to believe that the COVID crisis is almost over, we're seeing new and concerning developments. We only need to look at other countries with high vaccination rates to see devastating new waves of infection fueled by the Delta variant spreading through the unvaccinated population. On Wednesday, experts at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Infection reversed their earlier guidance, now saying the fully vaxxed should resume wearing masks inside in high-risk areas of the United States. We've also been told if we want to avoid a Delta surge in Canada, 90% of us must get fully vaccinated. And despite the fact that we've been told that mixing vaccines is safe and perhaps even better, some countries are not accepting this approach. In fact, in Quebec, third doses of COVID vaccine are being offered to people who want to travel internationally, but at their own risk. Is that the right way to go? Libby Snymer asked this of Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, an infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, place we are at now. When you think about six months ago or even, you know, four months ago where we were with vaccine shortage, uh, trying to, you know, give it out carefully to those who are at highest risk. Now we've come all the way to the other end of the spectrum where they're giving out third doses to people who simply want to travel. So, you know, when you're looking at vaccines, we need to ask the two questions of safety and efficacy. From the safety perspective, there's no issue. From the efficacy point of view, it's, it's not necessary to give additional doses. So it's just purely for the fact that there's administrative reasons in other countries that prevent people from traveling. So. There's certainly no risk from the medical side, but it's... Are, are you sure about that, that there's no risk for a third dose? Has that ever been tested? I, it's true that we, it's never been tested, but there isn't any reason at this point to believe there should be. In terms of short-term side effects, we know that people who have two doses don't have, have uh, anything that's significant that requires um, hospitalization associated with mRNA vaccines. Of course, we know about the AstraZeneca and the association with uh, thrombosis, but these extra doses would be likely to be mRNA vaccines that, you know, wouldn't be associated with that kind of side effect. So there isn't any strong reason to believe that we'd have long-term side effects associated with third doses, especially because there's also plans to provide third doses for the most vulnerable people, the immunocompromised individuals, in order to boost their immunity. So at this point, there isn't a lot of reason to believe that. Uh, Dr. Zha, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Happy to. Uh, so is is it a good idea? Quebec is offering third doses just for people who uh, want to travel. Is that a good idea? Well, it's not the biggest priority, as your uh, fellow panelists has said, that it's really forced by the necessity of inconsistent guidelines. Uh, I think the evidence is very clear that if you've had two vaccines, 
uh, including a mix of an AstraZeneca and one of the mRNAs. Now, there aren't randomized trials that show that that combination work. It's actually increasingly harder to do randomized trials just because so many people are now vaccinated, which is good. But there are careful studies that look at what we call neutralizing antibodies, meaning does the body mount a vigorous immune response if you've had a mix? And a recent report out of England suggested that it does. So I think what we need here is some guidelines from the World Health Organization, CDC, Health Canada, the European regulators need to talk and agree that what would be the standards for which vaccines are accepted for travel. And I think it's perfectly safe uh, if you travel with a mix of vaccines. Uh, Quebec is doing this for uh, I'm not sure what reasons. Now, the other part of it, I think we have to be clear that there is plentiful vaccines in Canada, but there's a dire shortage of vaccines in the world, particularly in the places that are generating the variants that threaten us, places like India or South Africa or Brazil. Uh, Those variants are global threats. So we really should be thinking about a global solution. And in that context, a third dose, except for immunocompromised people, really is a low-risk priority. And uh, I certainly wouldn't hope that would be what occupies the attention of the politicians and the and the public health leaders. Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Alan Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It was on Wednesday, Ontario's health minister announced a plan to clear the backlog of surgeries caused by the pandemic. Christine Elliott pledged $324 million for an additional 67,000 operations and 135,000 more hours for diagnostic imaging. But is this enough? The numbers are very different from those we heard from Ontario's financial accountability officer just two months ago. He projected the backlog would reach 419,000 procedures by the end of September and estimated it would cost the province $1.3 billion and take over 3.5 years to clear. Fightback gathered a panel of experts to talk about the new plan. On Thursday, Libby Snymer was joined by NDP health critic France Jelena, Dr. David Jacobs, president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists, Dr. Peter Ferguson, who is the Albert and Temi Latner Chair in the Division of Orthopedic Surgery and a professor in the Department of Surgery at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Kevin Smith. CEO of the University Health Network. I think it's a great start, and I don't know that we'll know that it's enough until we actually are able to dig into um, how many of those estimated procedures are still required and what was in the original modeling. Um, I'm Based on the numbers we're seeing at University Health Network, which is about 5,000 cases we've, we had to cancel, I'm optimistic that it is enough and that if we had to go back to the ministry, Uh, and the minister and talk about additional funding for catch-up, 
I think that she's open and accessible for us to do so. Dr. Ferguson, in your practice, do you think it'll be enough? So I would agree with with Dr. Smith that it is a good start. Um, I, I think that the, the truth is probably somewhere in between the numbers that uh, that you've given here earlier on. That uh, the 4,300, uh, I can tell you that from what I've seen, the uh, designated funding for orthopedic surgery procedures is good, but the the shortfall um, is still going to be. Uh, fairly significant, maybe not as much as much as was uh, prognosticated earlier on. But uh, I, I still think, and the message here for patients is that I don't think people uh, are going to be expecting a phone call uh, next week or the week after if they've been on the wait list to get their hip or knee replacement done. Dr. Jacobs, there's 135,000 more hours for diagnostic imaging. And, you know, a lot of people have had regular screening postponed and a lot have avoided it. So how is that going to play out? Because before you know you need or are eligible for the surgery, you've, you've got to get uh, the imaging done. Absolutely. Without a diagnosis, there's no cure. What we're going to see uh, is uh, we're going to understand in the next few months uh, how big the backlog is based on diagnostic imaging. There's always a constant level of disease in society, whether it be cancer, joint replacements, or whatever. We know that we've canceled or had to postpone a lot of these surgeries, but the total number is going to remain the same. What we're going to see is as we do more and more diagnostic imaging, uh, we're going to start to uncover a lot of these patients who have need of surgery. But in terms of the funding, this is tremendous. This is a tremendous gift uh, for the patients of Ontario. And in terms of whether it's going to clear out the backlog, yes, I think it will for diagnostic imaging. Um, What it won't clear out quite yet is all of our procedures that we do. We do a tremendous amount of interventional procedures, and those are very much backlogged as well. So it's a a really good start. uh, And if we can turn some of this into more permanent funding, I think we're going to be in in very good shape going forward. So let's bring in NDP, MPP and health critic Franck Jelina. Okay, so we've just talked to three doctors who are uh, on the ground providing these services and and they think uh, the announcement is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and And I was listening in. I'm not too worried about having sufficient physicians to do the procedures. Uh, where the worries come is for people who need to be admitted into the hospital after their surgical procedures. So some surgery, you go in in the morning, you see your physicians, you go into OR, you go home. Those I'm not too worried about. But for everybody who needs to be admitted, and sometimes you need to be admitted into the ICU uh, for an amount of time because of the surgery, then I'm very worried. I'm at a rally right now at the hospital. The number of nurses, like experienced nurses, you're talking 25, 28, 30 years of practice, who who stayed through the pandemic because they knew that they needed, we needed them and, and they wanted to be up to it, are leaving. They cannot take that amount of stress anymore. Uh, a surgeon is very important, but the post- the surgical care is done by nurses, by respiratory therapists, by physiotherapists, by everybody else, by PSW, by RN, by RPN. And all of them have worked flat out through the pandemic, are tired, are demotivated, and, say, and are saying goodbye. 
NDP health critic Frost Jelena, Dr. David Jacobs, president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists, Dr. Peter Ferguson, who is the Albert and Tammy Latner Chair in the Division of Orthopedic Surgery and a professor in the Department of Surgery at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Kevin Smith. CEO of the University Health Network. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, you might not admit it, but chances are you have driven dangerously. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I want you to be honest. Do you ever drive dangerously? A new poll from CAA reveals that 55% of Ontario drivers admit to engaging in unsafe driving habits at least sometimes. Libby Snymer speculated she thinks 45% of respondents are not telling the truth and have likely also engaged in dangerous driving. To talk about the findings, Raymond Chan, Manager of Government Relations for CAA South Central Ontario, and Brian Patterson, President and CEO of the Ontario Safety League, joined Fight Back. We deal with uh, uh, deviant drivers every month, and we do a lot of work with corporations. And when you ask people to assess their own driving, they think they're sort of a 9 or a 10. And when you ask them to assess everybody else's driving, they're a four or a five. So I think CAA has done everybody a big favor by doing the science to quantify the problem that we're seeing out there today. So, Raymond, uh, were you surprised at all? And do you agree with me that if 55% say they do this sometimes, the other 45% are just not fessing up? I think so. Um, I, I, I would tend to agree. You know, when I saw these results, I would say that the 55% to me personally was a little bit low. I can't imagine that, uh, that, that everybody out there is driving, the, you know, according to the rules of the road and the way that they should be. This number, you know, 55 does reflect a fair number of drivers that are out there who self-admitted that uh, they, they, they have driven in some sort of unsafe uh, fashion. So, I would say that the number is is rather low, and I was uh, I was surprised to see it. Okay, well, let's talk about what constitutes driving dangerously. Let, let me just tell you some of the things I witness on a regular basis that sometimes just shock me. Uh, one of them is people in the left lane suddenly deciding they're going to turn right. That's pretty dangerous. There's a lot of cutting off, so it's an unsafe lane change. Somebody who decides at the last minute they're they're going in front of you or they don't really have clearance to change lanes, but they do it anyway. What else are the common things, Brian? Well, I think we've got people that are just consistently driving too fast. I think they think that the, uh, the, the little square white object with a number in it is kind of a suggestion it's not really a requirement uh i know with the uh with the opp uh every time they're at a public event somebody will ask what is the margin i'm allowed to drive over the limit and not get a ticket uh and i think we see it consistently i'm sure 
every uh, justice of the peace gets the, uh, the 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 great whining story. I wasn't the only one doing it, but I was the only one who got a ticket. Therefore, you should cancel my ticket. We we still see improvement in areas like impaired driving and uh, awareness. And again, CAA has pulled that number out where people are very, very happy with the changes we collectively advocated for with the uh, minister's office, only to find that they like it for everybody else. But I can tell you the people I see on the weekend who've been caught under stunt driving and related extreme driving habits, they feel they were sort of picked on. Raymond, what are some of the other common dangerous behaviors? Well, I think one of the things that hasn't been mentioned is is tailgating. Tailgating is one of those just yeah. common things, and I see it all the time as I'm driving. The person who's um, following me way too closely, almost near my bumper, that is actually considered as a dangerous act and could potentially uh, be be labeled as uh, as dangerous driving. Um, a lot of people, what we found um, and who we've surveyed, simply don't know what um, what dangerous or stunt or distracted driving, what actually constitutes as that. A lot of people, when you hear the term stunt driving, they simply think of either speeding or driving aggressively in some nature. But I think you gave some of the other examples there about weaving in and out, about uh, unsafe lane changes, you know, not, not using your signal, that sort of thing. All these things are, are just bad things that, uh, that occur on the roadways as you're driving. And I see it quite frequently. And I don't think necessarily the message is, uh, is getting home to people about how serious uh, potentially those inactions could be. Raymond Chan, Manager of Government Relations for CAA South Central Ontario, and Brian Patterson, President and CEO of the Ontario Safety League. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Have you found you're throwing out food that you don't get around to using before it goes bad? If this is the case, you're not alone. In Toronto, single-family households dispose of as much as 440 pounds of food every year. In fact, more than 50% of the food produced in Canada is wasted. We're talking about more than 35 million tons of it each year in this country, the equivalent of the weight of 273 CN Towers with 11.2 million tons of that still being perfectly edible. A lot of it happens at the corporate level, fruit and vegetables deemed too irregular or ugly to be sold are wasted. But on a personal level, the pandemic may have prompted you to buy more when you go grocery shopping and then have it go bad before you can get to it. Well, now there's an app for that, developed by Sam Kashani, Canada Country Manager at Too Good To Go, which allows consumers to purchase leftover foods from participating food stores at a discounted price. He joined Libby on Tuesday, along with Dr. Paul Ayes of the Ontario Agricultural College at the University of Guelph, and Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Let us begin with Sam, who is the country manager at Too Good To Go. So tell us how the app works. 
Thanks, Libby, for having me. Um, yeah, the app connects consumers with stores that have surplus food left over at the end of the day. So as a consumer, you can essentially download the app through the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store, look at your geographic area, and essentially pick a store close to you and go in at a defined pickup window and pick up what we call a surprise bag. And a surprise bag essentially consists of surplus food that they have left over at the end of the day. Um, and instead of throwing that out, consumers can essentially pick it up for a discounted rate, as you mentioned. And why we're super inspired about bringing this platform to Canada is that it's a win-win-win. Okay, Dr. Charlebois, so how much of the problem of food waste is actually related to that, to something that might be thrown out from a store? The issue of food waste, obviously, is a huge one at retail. Uh, And, of course, uh, consumers uh, do waste a whole lot more than any other stakeholders within the uh, uh, entire food supply chain. So uh, I'm, I'm really, I'm really happy to see more technologies addressing this issue. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, too good to the, the, this new technology is actually addressing this issue. There's, there's quite a lot more that consumers can do uh, every single day. I, I think, in light of COVID, it got us to 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 become better inventory managers at home we're more aware of what actually is happening in our fridges and and cupboards and so when we show up at the grocery store i have always thought that uh, you know the biggest the, the biggest challenge that we have is that we often buy too much food and uh our back in march of 2020 that's kind of that was the needed reaction for a lot of people just to basically buy as much as possible without knowing when they would that we would be allowed to go back in stores and that's kind of how we are. The, the, the Costco model, uh, family packs work, have worked very well in the 90s and 2000s because food was actually quite affordable uh, and, frankly, quite cheap. And people were just uh, hardwired to save and, and, uh, and hoard. Now we're into a new era of sustainability and responsible shopping. And that's why we're hearing a lot more about food waste and, of course, Food is becoming a little bit more expensive, so people are very careful. I am finding a lot of things, especially, uh, you know, things that I might buy from a bakery, much more expensive. But in the pandemic, uh, you know, it wasn't even so much... uh, personally, for hoarding. but So you buy uh, protein, but um, well, I don't know exactly how I'm going to cook it, so I get more vegetables than, than I know, or more herbs, and, and some of them get used and some of them don't. Is that a problem for a lot of people, Dr. Ace? Yeah, I, I, Libby, I think you just touched on a very sensitive area, and I, you know, I'm like everybody else. I have it really it sticks my gullet when I buy produce and, you know, I'm forced to buy large quantities. Yes. <laughs> you just touched on it. It's always, I would love there to be a better solution um, because the stuff comes in, in large quantities. And, you know, you talk about coming out of the supermarket, of course, they themselves have their own waste. Uh, it's also how do they treat, uh, you know, and I come from the supermarket business. It's how do they handle the stuff as well before you've even bought it. So are you buying something that, in fact, ultimately is uh, is going to deteriorate more quickly because it hasn't had the right cold chain and that type of thing? And then, of course, the size of pack comes into it. 
the distance that the products have traveled. And of course, that for us in Canada can also be an enormous challenge because, you know, you could, you're buying produce that's probably been on a truck for two, three, four days from Mexico or California. So these things all add up and they certainly have, um, uh, you know, play a part. And I think, though, I think Sylvan hit the nail on the head that there is, there is a much more uh, huge awareness Food, food didn't have the value that it really needs to have in a lot of consumers' minds, the real value of food. Dr. Paul Ayes of the Ontario Agricultural College at the University of Guelph, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, and Sam Kashani, Canada Country Manager at Too Good To Go. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jim in Scarborough, who says he has friends who've been brainwashed into becoming anti-vaxxers. I've been listening to your great guests and reason I phoned is I, I'm a Caucasian guy in his late 60s and um, with a good education, and I have several friends. I wanted to raise the issue, several friends who, who are anti-vaxxers, and I wanted to raise the issue of the influence of the media and culture. Your guests, you know, highly intelligent people are using these uh, statements of logic. And what I see among some people I know is that they basically, I hesitate to use the word, but they get all their information from shows like Tucker Carlson and Rush Limbaugh, who is now no longer in the air, and other far right-wing you know, news media. And this anti-vax stance is just one in a whole suite of ideas that they've virtually... Uh, there's a film called The Brainwashing of My Father, and it exactly describes these two or three friends That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeeb Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.